Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to Belabor the Point. I'm your host, Kate Riga. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, TPM Associate Editor and my best friend, Nicola Fond. Nicole, welcome. (laughs) Hi, thank you for having me. So Nicole and I just wrapped up talking to Karen Lee Ashcraft, this incredibly cool and smart professor at University of Colorado Boulder, who wrote this really fascinating book about aggrieved masculinity. It's kind of, you know, intrinsic connection to the far right, how the internet is like a super spreader of this virus. And one thing that I was really struck by in our conversation, I'm interested to hear what you think, Nicole, is that the framing of this, you know, aggrieved masculinity, I think what maybe most people know as like, quote unquote, toxic masculinity as like an illness that needs like a public health response. Right. Like a virus that spreads online and in every aspect of our communication and existence and how we view and uh, just exist in the world. It was really fascinating and illuminating. Yeah, because it's like such a good way of describing what we got into with her when she how she kind of told us how it has such cross-cultural applications because it's so Mm -hmm. like emotion based that you don't necessarily have to have any kind of specific context to understand it, like beyond the binary of kind of like men v. women. Yeah. And I thought you made such a good point when you said this. I wanted to be like, yes, Kate, (laughs) so good. But just like the idea that when something's a feeling, you can't debate it. It's almost as if there's no point in trying because if it's a feeling, it's a feeling and people are going to, you know, exist and act and behave in their lives based on how they feel. Um, You know, none of us, a lot of was one thing that we learn like as we emotionally mature is like the only person that's responsible for how you feel and react to situations yeah. is yourself but it seems that you know especially within this context <laughs> the men haven't gone to therapy so yeah. um, but the you know it's the idea that there's no like logic to there's no um logic or reason behind this movement it's, it's a feeling and yeah, yeah I thought that was and really interesting Totally. And it like kind of reminded me of abortion debates because mm. for decades it's been, you know, the side advocating for abortion rights will talk about how like outcomes for societies that have abortion access are better by every metric, right? Like economic, um, like health wise, kind of psychological, that it's just like better for women not to have to carry pregnancies they don't want to have. But you can't have that debate because the other side has always been like, but it's our religious conviction that Mm -hmm. it's 
murder, right? And, you know, to some degree, religious conviction is like a a dressed up feeling like that it's not rooted in any kind of data or like academic research. So it's it's the same feeling I've always felt during that, which is like one side has all the facts and the kind of scientific consensus, but the other side is like, but we feel this very strongly. And it's like, well, <laughs> okay. I mean, okay, I guess that's then. the end of the conversation then, you know. <laughs> this is the world, I guess. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's a good point. Yeah. It was interesting. And also the religious aspect of it. I, I was really happy to hear that she is a another fellow, um, <laughs> uh, I don't want to say ex- religious person, but it is always fascinating to have these conversations with people who have grown up in similarly right-wing religious homes. And one of my favorite, and I said this in the conversation, but just in reading parts of her book, I really loved this idea that she has created and given, maybe not created, but she's given language for something that like I haven't ever been able to articulate very well. And she calls it lateral empathy, which is like, she can explain it far better than I when you listen to the episode. But, you know, it's this idea of rather than reacting to like what people are presenting you with, it's more about like engaging with people on a level that looks at motives rather than like feelings behind what they show you on the face. And I just thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And also the other piece of the public health thing that is really interesting to me is that it does take all that onus off of like individual accountability, which we like got into in the pod, but which is so always crops up whenever we kind of talk about like the masses of disaffected men. It's like, while Mm -hmm. they, you know, the women didn't love them well enough or like didn't want to date them in school. And then they became um, like radicalized and like committed some atrocious act of violence. And when it's a public health perspective, like that solution makes no sense because it's societal level, right? Like it's, it's a mm-hmm. level up from individuals. And I think that, you know, fresh out of a pandemic, we should all know how to like operate responsibly in a public health crisis. And it's a good way to think about it because as you said, it's, it doesn't put the onus on women to just like have better empathy for men or um, women like needing to, date men to solve the male loneliness pandemic or whatever. It's on everyone and it's on society. It's on like the systems that we operate in to change. Yeah. And I think just the last part that was really interesting to me is like, I think we are particularly fascinated whenever culture war stuff that is masquerading as a problem of the common man when those things are hijacked by like, as we say in the conversation, but you know, the Josh Hollies, the JD Vances, these like Harvard grads who are some of the most powerful people in society. Whenever that transmission happens, there's like always something else afoot, right? There's always an idea that these culture war stuff is like serving these right-wing elites in some greater and perhaps non-obvious way. And I do think in this case, cloaking these ideologies that are inherently misogynistic in something like economic anxiety, but then only interrogating that insofar as, you know, that like uppity women and people of color are, I don't know, still as they have been for decades, entering the labor force and 
we don't like that. There's no any there's no any like structural interrogation further than that of like, you know, rent is high and the minimum wage hasn't been raised in forever. And, you know, tuition at college is, is ballooning. It, it's never it doesn't end with that. Right. It ends with like right. critical race theory or something. And I think that does such a service for the Hollies and the Vances because then these like Republican plutocrats can kind of pretend to be populists and pretend right. that they are also concerned about the plight of the common man while consistently voting against any kind of measure that would make life cheaper and easier for, you know, said common man. Right. Said common man and everyone else. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. And everyone else that they're not <laughs> as concerned about. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. So here is our conversation with Karen. I think it's a really good one. This is a topic that Nicole and I think about pretty much every day in our political reporting. Um, so enjoy. Today, TPM Associate Editor Nicole LaFond and I are lucky enough to be joined by our special guest, Karen Lee Ashcraft. Karen is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, an award-winning scholarly expert on gender communication theory and the politics of organizing, and a daughter of the religious right who's still in relationship to right-wing quote-unquote populists. Karen, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So Nicole and I are particularly jazzed for this episode because we're going to talk about something the two of us are obsessed with in our you know daily political coverage, which is the status and evolution of toxic masculinity, what Karen calls aggrieved manhood, or what I really love, manly grievance. I love that. Um, in her excellent book, Wronged and Dangerous, Viral Masculinity and the Populist Pandemic. And particularly, we're eager to kind of get into the relationship of this grievance, you know, to the political right, the the kind of existential in, uh, entwinement of these two things. So we have a, a lot to get into today. So let's just jump in and start with this idea that masculinity is, you know, under crisis. It feels like it's at an inflection point right now, but also that it's not a particularly new crisis to have befallen us. So Karen, mm. can you kind of give us a rough idea of the trajectory of this notion and like when it started springing up in our politics? Absolutely. So um, aggrieved manhood, aggrieved masculinity, manly grievance, all of those are synonyms, right, that I'm using to capture what is essentially a feeling um, a conviction, like a felt certainty that real men, like, you know, particularly straight, white, Western men, manhood, are under attack, right? All this conversation, for example, about toxic masculinity sort of proves their point, right? That if you're a real man today, or if you value manhood, you're under siege, you're the bad guy, something's wrong with you, you're toxic. So you're absolutely right that this is in no way new. Um, if you look back historically, there have been crises of masculinity proclaimed for so long. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And all of those crises are culturally specific, right? So they happen in different national, regional contexts. Um, about 20 years ago, I started studying crises of masculinity with a colleague. And we began with a crisis that was uh, in the US around 100 years ago. And we were sort of comparing some of the themes of that crisis with the one that was emerging at the time we were writing. So briefly, the history of the current moment is 
really coming out of a lot of the social movements in the 60s and 70s um, around feminism, gay liberation, civil rights, um, all kinds of racial justice movements. And there was an emerging sense coming out of those that the bad guy, the fall guy, the person it wasn't cool to be anymore was the one who was allegedly so privileged, the straight white guy, right? So we started seeing a rash of literature, films, all kinds of kind of popular culture examples of um, white men can't catch a break, basically being the theme. And then this has kind of intensified, taken so many different forms. And that's one of the challenges I'm sure we'll talk about is that it's hard to recognize the through line through some of those different forms. It can be as, you know, volatile or virulent as Andrew Tate and as seemingly intellectual as Jordan Peterson. And so it's hard to see what combines all those threads. Um, but it really has been on an intensification or an escalation ever since um, the 60s and 70s and kind of the men's movements that began to respond to those movements in an oppositional way. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just kind of piggybacking off what you just explained, it's it's kind of hard to wrap your head around the idea that you know, how are we even having this conversation when we live in a culture that, you know, socially, economically, politically, religiously uh, favors men by almost mm. every measure? Mm. Yeah. Well, this is where I like to borrow a phrase from Michael Kimmel, who wrote the book Angry White Men um, around the time just before Trump's election. He was following the Tea Party and kind of making these connections. And he described this feeling. And that's, I can't emphasize enough that the felt part of it, that it's not necessarily an ideology, but a feeling um, that it's real, but not true which I think Nicole gets at what you're saying. If you look at kind of every data evidence indicator, it would be hard to maintain the truth, so to speak, of this feeling. And yet in the ways that it circulates, it's passed around, it is absolutely experienced in the everyday by tons of people and not just men as very real, undeniable, you know, like that's why, that's why I introduced it as a felt truth. Uh, right. So I think that's, that's a complication for sure. And it's funny because it almost, if it's just a feeling, it's like impossible to disprove or debunk, right? Yes. And I think that is such an important point because you'll notice that we tend to respond to this feeling in all the ways it presents itself at the level of argument, mm. you know, yeah. or we talk about misinformation, disinformation, it's ideological radicalization. And what we're missing is that it is an animating, like felt truth that then attaches so easily to any kind of ideology, right? It can go so many different ways. So when you're addressing it at the level of content and not at the level of feeling, it's really um, not going to be a great conversation. <laughs> right. Because nothing is going to rattle the feeling mm -hmm. at the content right. level, if that makes sense. It's already... Uh, experienced as real. Yeah. And also this idea of it just like masculinity kind of being in crisis is kind of funny to me because on the one hand, it's being presented as this like 
all-powerful kind of super important force that we need to maintain for for the good and the order and and sus, you know sustainability of society mm-hmm. but at the same time it's like fragile enough to kind of need protection or like bailing out all the time so you know oh which goodness. is it <laughs> <laughs> that is so you you put the you got the irony right on the nose there <laughs> i mean this is one of the things that i try to Um, elaborate in the book and explain is how a supremacy this big is actually difficult to maintain, right? Mm -hmm. You're talking about a supremacy that is based on homophobia, you know, white supremacy, racism, patriarchy, transphobia, I mean, all kinds of other anti-anti-anti sentiments, right? And not Mm -hmm. everyone who subscribes or feels the feeling would subscribe to those ideologies. But the overall kind of supremacy is pretty difficult to maintain. Of course, it's fragile because there's all kinds of challenges to it. And that's why these anxieties tend to um, intensify and you see sort of a backlash around social movements that make racial progress, gender progress, you know, things of that sort. So I think it's crucial to realize like this level of so-called virility is inherently fragile because it depends on being at the top of the pack. And that's not an easy position to sustain. So yeah, that irony is always going to be there, I think. Could you maybe, um, you know, talk a little bit with us because, you know, this is what we're focused on politically we cover the far right and the ways in which, uh, you know, it's evolved even in the past few Mm -hmm. years. Um, So we're particularly interested in this kind of intrinsic intertwining of aggrieved masculinity and the far right. Could you kind of expand on that a little bit for us? Happily. So one of the things I notice, I'd be interested to hear if you have um, different impressions, is that the far right and right-wing populism, maybe other sort of synonyms or converging terms, is usually talked about separately from toxic masculinity, or we like to kind of separate, I think, in many ways, these different isms. Um, And the difficulty there for me is that I think there is so much overlap. They are essentially two sides of one coin. That is, the far right runs on, it is fueled by what propels it around the world and has made it so contagious in this historical moment is aggrieved manhood, right? And so um, we can talk more about the details of how that happens, but I think it is important for us to recognize the synergy between these and that aggrieved manhood is essentially like the renewable energy source that gets recruitment going, that gets people fired up about culture war targets that is constantly drawing attention and energy and uh, economy toward the plight of men today. (laughs) And that has um, a lot to do with why the far right has been so successful, not just here locally, but on a global scale as well. Yeah. And you, you totally just got at something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is how we're so, you know, the collective we are so bad at kind of recognizing the misogynistic foundation of of these far right movements. And Mm -hmm. I think most recently that kind of came up, especially when everyone was trying to dissect 
Trump's popularity and kind of how how he won this idea of, you know, economic anxiety as if that's a problem siloed off for kind of the white blue collar men who like propelled him to victory, you know, and how like these different sects of the working class, I I guess, just were devoid of such anxiety. Yes, yes, yes. If you know, if we could take, um, well, first, I mean, one of the, the points I try to make in the book and trace empirically is the ways in which this feeling, aggrieved manhood, has kind of hijacked or stolen real class concerns so that when we think white working class, we automatically think about a particular kind of um, white blue collar guy hero, right? <laughs> um, but I think a really good example, Kate, of how that happens is if you remember, I think it comes up every now and then still, but do you remember um, the kind of furor over the great replacement theory, especially mm-hmm. when Tucker Carlson started spouting it from his rather large platform at the time? And everyone was saying, um, okay, it's far right ideology. It's white nationalists. Like that's racist. It's, but what we are missing in terms of the misogynistic foundation, as you put it, is that replacement theory is fundamentally about um, gender and sexuality just as much as it's about race. And the idea behind replacement theory is that um, white women have basically fallen down on their reproductive duties because they are out there, thanks to feminism, trying to have careers. And lo and behold, they're sleeping with men of color and having their babies, right? That's This is part of an integral part of replacement theory. But we don't talk about these as if they're two sides of one coin, right? It's white nationalism and then it's patriarchy over here. They, as I like to say, suckle at the dark web's bosom together. (laughs) (laughs) That's really poetic. (laughs) I thought the metaphor metaphor is kind of apt, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You also just, something you said just like made me think, okay, so this umbrella of like economic anxiety, right? Because I think to some degree Mm -hmm. it's, it's also easier to like pin a movement on that than it is for kind of quote unquote mainstream media, which is generally like very uncomfortable with kind of labeling things as like sexist and racist. And I mean, that has never been more clear than during Trump's tenure. But it also is interesting because that idea is clearly not really interrogated either any further than this idea of like, okay, maybe there's economic anxiety in terms of like non-college educated white men are having like more trouble in the labor market than they once did. But why I'm so interested in this is I think any movement like this that kind of distracts from the structural underpinnings of like why things are the way they are, I think is so useful. And like, we'll get into this later, but I think might also explain why like right-wing elites, quote unquote, are like in on this as well, because the economic anxiety is not coming through as like these, you know, Trump supporters being like the minimum wage is way too freaking low you know like rent is too high it's like not really about any of these bread and butter economic things you know it it is all just this culture warring wearing a Mm -hmm. coat of economic anxiety but not really talking about like the nuts and bolts of kind of why the economy sucks for a lot of people Kate that's precisely my argument that's you said that so well I think that 
um, this is the role that populism is playing. Mm-hmm. It's a sympathetic form, right? It's like a cloak, like you just said. I call it like a gender laundering service because it makes it seem like it's this uprising of the downtrodden, forgotten man, the average Joe, right? And in fact, it's like a cleansing device that takes what is all of these sorts of um, kind of hatreds, misogyny, racism, all this, and packages them in this very sympathetic figure. And I think that's a real caution that we should be having, especially since all of the data points yes, there is real economic anxiety that is felt not just by certain white men, but by people of all political and uh, racial and gender stripes, right? But we don't talk about class in those cross cutting ways. So the majority of folks who are supporting these far right, right wing sort of cultural war things that you describe are not in fact economically insecure. Many are downright elite um, or certainly well-educated. So there's another element of that like economic insecurity, which has to do with comparative or relative or perceived insecurity. So like in my family, for example, um, there were both not college-educated and college-educated professionals, but all of them felt that um, relative, you know, relative to people of color or relative to folks on the left who were... Um, you know, feminists, maybe their their relative position had been declining in the last 20 years. So it wasn't like they couldn't pay the bills. It was like, wait, I should be ahead of them in line, you know? Yeah. So there's, I think there's also that um, when we talk about economic anxiety, that's not one thing. And there can be perceptions of it that just like aggrieved manhood are real, but not true and are about relative comparisons that are yet again about race, gender and so forth. Yeah, there's there's just this other really interesting piece where, as you write, you know, this is presented as a populist, you know, working man's issue, but it's being routinely hijacked by Republican figures who are indisputably elite. You know, you think about Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, J.D. Vance. I mean, you know, J.D. Vance uh, has his own history of complications. Doesn't with he, He's elite. <laughs> yes. <Doesn't> he? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just, you know, I mean, it's there are no point. better poster poster boys <laughs> for that phenomenon of the populist posing of what is essentially, yeah, elite supported mm-hmm. ideology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I do feel at every turn, you know, one thing that I um, am quite committed to is not taking an anti-populist tack about this. I am more interested in pointing out that populism and its form is getting a bad name here. It is being misused as a cover to make something much uglier, more legitimate. And so rather than being anti-populist and therefore fueling the sort of um, perceptions of elite establishment response, right? Which are like, look at these, you know, um, lowly or stupid or uneducated folks. No, that's not the tack I want to take. I want to like rip that cloak off and say, what is populist about this? <laughs> this is in fact, not for the people at all. This is about the reinstatement of the supremacy that has barely begun in the scheme of history to be challenged of a very specific kind of person, kind of masculinity. Yeah, it's so 
you know, it's the whole thing of like, if they can come for Trump, they can come for you. And it's like, well, why would that be the case? (laughs) Were you born into like a bajillion dollars? Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. But all the, and all the sort of tactics by which that felt alignment is made are so important to call out. And I see so little of that in journalistic practice. I mean, that's part of what I've been trying to call for is once you start attending to the feeling dynamic of this, then you start noticing these aren't so much like ideological strategies as they are like affective or emotional strategies. And you can point those out and debunk those in the same way that we attack things or respond to things that involve mis and disinformation. But we seem not to get a grip on the the feeling, the emotion-based part of this. Totally. Um, Another linchpin of your book that I want to get into is kind of, uh, you know, the internet slash like social media as a a super Mm. spreader of the, the manly grievance virus. And what is it about that that's been such a useful transmitter of that? Is it like the communal aspect of like bringing the disaffected men together as kind of an easily reached audience? Is it that they're like, women that are easily targeted online, something else? Like, what Mm -hmm. is it about the internet that's been such a powerful, you know, fanning of these flames? Yes, thank you for asking that. And this is sort of where my um, communication scholar self comes in. Because I think in these conversations, there's a tendency to say, the internet did it, right? (laughs) Like, if we have a villain, it's social media. And mine is not an argument about any technology in particular or platform, but rather that um, the affordances of online culture wars have generated a kind of new communicative circuitry in the last 10 to 15 years, documented by all kinds of research, my colleagues in new media studies, information science. But suffice it to say, for our purposes, we're talking about a relationship between like the network and the body, where we are increasingly susceptible to the social, physical transmission of social feeling, right? So we're actually talking, when I use the term viral masculinity, I'm not being exactly literal in the biomedical sense, but I am being more than metaphorical, right? I am saying that it physically transmits easier through the kind of networked organizing that we see today, right? Now, you mentioned that all of these communities are quite disparate. Like you've got your your trad wives, you've got your um, pickup artists, uh, your incels, like many of these communities would see themselves as opposed uh, if they even talk at all, right? So how should we think of those as organizing around aggrieved manhood as a feeling? Well, the thing is, the more they spar with one another, the more attention they draw in from all different kinds of bodies circulating around this network, the bigger the space they claim for this feeling. Right. And that really is the point is to grow the share of space, like the territory that the feeling takes up, because that's how it becomes more real. That's how it becomes hard to argue with. People feel it in Sweden and they feel it in Iran. You know, like how how could that happen if it weren't grassroots? 
Am I mm-hmm. making sense? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. this is how it's not just the internet, though that is a crucial technology, but it is about the communicative circuitry and our bodies are part of that. What we need to be paying attention to now, in my view, is not so much ideological radicalization as physical radicalization. I might call it like radicalizing the reflexes. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that is how young boys are particularly vulnerable to this. I'll stop there for now. <laughs> you can tell, I get, you can tell I get all excited when we start talking about <laughs> the technicality well, of it. Yeah. And it's funny that you bring up the trad wife thing because I was actually going to ask you about it. And for, you know, listeners, if you don't know what trad wife is, it's like this phenomenon that's kind of spread on TikTok that entails videos of young women kind of cooking and cleaning and full makeup and outfits and espousing the virtues of being essentially a stereotypical 50s housewife. And it's, it's kind of picked up a lot of traction recently. But is that, I guess to just piggyback off of that, is that a tentacle of this movement? like fully? And then how, I guess, do women play a role in upholding this grievance? Mm, Two critical questions. So did you say a tentacle of this movement? I love that. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I think it is important um, to realize that we are not talking about a conspiracy or a headquarters or a centralized agency. Like that's the power of the internet is you can have all of this highly fragmented dispersed activity that happens to be in community because it's working toward the amplification of a shared feeling, right? So I don't need to make the claim that trad wives are somehow prompted by this particular version of the far right to see their close relation and collaboration, right? And I think what's really interesting about movements like trad wives, and there are so many, I mean, you do not have to look far Uh, locally or globally to see examples of women actively participating in and propping up this feeling. Um, And what you can learn from that, I think our tendency is to see something like trad wives and say, oh, well, look, women are doing it too. So it can't really be about gender. This is just an authentically felt way of life, right? This is how it's populist. But um, you have to use the women who are propping this up and their particularities to learn about the masculinity that's in question here, right? So Tradwife tells us, ooh, it's um, heterosexual, isn't it? <laughs> so, And it is also um, hell-bent on a certain sort of notion of family. And it's overwhelmingly, though not exclusively, white. Like, this is how you start realizing kind of all the intersections that are at play. We're not just talking about a crisis of masculinity. We're talking about a very specific strain. And the women who are involved help to reveal that. Now, I think trad wives, you know, um, are going off of a particular kind of evangelical religious right orientation. Not always. Some of that performative, you, the way you described it was great. It's like a performative submissiveness. Like, look at me, Betty Friedan, you know, <laughs> 50 years later, <laughs> loving the feminine mystique, making it look hot, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> um, So, you know, that could have a religious inflection and there will be very different uh, sources of women's participation in other corners and circles. So I don't know if I have circled around to the question, which was about how women participate actively. And I think we learn much from paying attention to that participation. Um, 
but also to the question of how are all these things related when they seem so different? I think that is what is incumbent on not just journalists, but like the public in educating ourselves about this to start to see the through line. And a grieved manhood, manly grievance, no matter who is doing it, is the through line. It's binding January 6th to mass shootings, to environmental resistance, to the kind of candidates that we've been talking about today. Like that is the through line. It's so funny because I had never heard of Trad Wives before Nicole um, sent me the videos because I am. <laughs> oh, for you. I know. I'm missed out. Like, I'm not on TikTok, so I hadn't seen it. And it's just so funny how it start or the the one particular video I watched like started on the same note as so much of this like you know more more uh, quote unquote mainstream kind of like male Tucker Carlson whatever that kind of stuff which is the note of grievance right like this particular young woman was just like you know everyone is like maligning women who want to like stay home and be mothers and have children. And it's like, you know, you you kind of, that's the natural jumping off point for her video, but it's kind of like you hear that and you're like, who, who's maligning those things? Like women are still kind of routinely like berated for not getting married and not having children. It's like clearly still kind of the mainstream path. And yet it's like, well, it's under attack. Like by whom? When? <laughs> you know, it's like those aren't the women who are being like, you know, demonized for being like unwanted or undesirable or like failing at their womenly duties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yes. Not yes. even a question, just a moment of rage, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> because it turns out we all have feeling that we need to get out there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> On these themes. Yeah. Um, I want to like kind of take an even an even darker turn, which is how these dynamics can and often do lead to violence. You know, we have a good deal of kind of academic studies showing that tons of, of mass shooters have histories of domestic violence and the sublimation of women is nearly always part of, you know, manifestos or kind of online activity that these people leave behind. And this is something that really struck me after Paul Pelosi, Nancy's husband, was attacked because at the very most, when you had kind of pieces writing that up afterwards, they would acknowledge that, you know, she's been this kind of right wing boogeyman for for the entirety of her career. Mm -hmm. But there was never any like prodding further, right? Like, why was she such an effective boogeyman? Why did she engender such hatred? No real interrogation of this idea that like, you know, she's been transgressing traditional gender roles for her whole career, like frequently being the only woman Mm -hmm. kind of in these most powerful roles in Congress. So I guess my question is just like, why are we incapable of seeing this particular kind of violence as like inherently misogynistic? I, that's a great question. And I think it extends beyond what we might see as like domestic violence or clear supremacy crimes, whether it's gender, race, we're talking about rape, sexual assault, whatever it might be, attacks of this kind. Um, I think we're incapable for some reason of seeing environmental violence and degradation as gendered. We seem incapable of sustaining a conversation about mass shootings as gendered, even though we routinely point out who the shooters are. Do you know what I mean? But it's as if, it's as if across all of these different sort of violences, and I should add that another very important one, which actually hurts the very men that aggrieved manhood claims to benefit is gun suicide, which disproportionately affects white men. Um, Mm -hmm. so, um, 
I think, you know, part of this difficulty is that we don't think of gender as an explanatory device. We, we tend to think of it as just like, well, that's who's doing these crimes, but we don't think of gender as, as a motive. We don't think of it as a relation that calls people towards certain actions that are highly destructive and as something needs to be addressed in that sense. So I think, you know, it's pretty important that we begin to name all of these different violences that you've mentioned as specifically gendered. And not only that, but that being part of this through line that I mentioned earlier. The Paul Pelosi example, I think, is pretty poignant because... Um, not only as somebody who watched for, gosh, 30 years as Nancy Pelosi's career unfolded with all manner of gendered attacks, then the attack is on her husband as if somehow that makes it not gendered. Right? Exactly. And I think, exactly. yeah, I think that's what you're pointing out. So it just takes a much more rigorous, I think, um, reporting and accounting for the connections among these. And there's all kinds of scholarship that demonstrates those connections, but it doesn't seem to make it into our public discourse. And maybe, you know, a related thing that I would mention is there is a reason that gender um, is an easy way for movements and violence and things of this sort to travel. And that is because it's one of the only so-called differences in the world that is articulated along a binary in many or most cultures, right? So you try to explain like racial and religious resentments in India, translate those into the U.S. That is not easy to do, right? Yeah. The, the categories are different, the complexities, the local histories, but the idea of manly rights being violated, being wronged is contagious because it's on a binary, manly rights, wronged, men, women, right? And so it just flows more easily and picks up all these other attachments. And I think that's why it's been so effective for kind of drawing bodies, mobilizing bodies to these forms of violence that then become imitative. Just the existence of this phenomenon, this manly grievance um, movement, like make violence, particularly against women, inevitable? Say that again, the first part of that. Does the, what was... Just the, the fact that this movement exists, you know, like it's a part mm -hmm. of our culture. Mm -hmm. It's a part of mm -hmm. our lives. It's part of every um, aspect of societal living. Do you think that it makes violence inevitable? I mean, are, will we ever live in a world where there's no violence, no violence against women? I think that question, I don't know about you, Kate, but that hit me in the gut, that question. <laughs> and I guess what I want to say is I most certainly think it normalizes violence mm -hmm. against not only women, uh, but others with a capital O, all kinds of people who are othered. But I think it, in that way, we, we, we sometimes think of people who are othered, women included, as the targets of this violence. And so, and they are, they are. But the thing yeah. is, what I've been trying to work toward is like, no, and I should say, and this is a public health problem. 
because mm. everyone is in the crosshairs of this violence. So the more we normalize supremacy crimes against what is essentially the majority of the population, women alone are half, right? <laughs> when you start to normalize those and then see the way that they are perpetrated on the planet, at airplanes, you know, in shootings on a mass scale, you realize that everyone is paying everyone is at an elevated risk. And if that, including the people perpetrating this violence, if that is not the definition of a public health risk, right? So I do worry. I certainly think it normalizes um, violence against women. And I do worry that it makes it um, more palatable, inevitable, as you say, like hopeless, there can be that feeling. But I think framing it, reframing it as something that needs almost literally public health attention um, would help us move in a different direction where people don't feel like, well, I'm safe because I'm not part of those groups, you know, mm -hmm. it's a really I complex question. I want to get into the, the realm of like empathy, but real quick first, something you said just like made my brain ping, which is when you were talking about how the binary makes this so easily transferable to kind of other cultural settings that might mm -hmm. otherwise suffer to to translate some of this stuff. But is that, do you think that's where this like virulent strain of transphobia is coming from right now? Is it like a, a panic attack over losing the binary that has been so useful? I rarely give an answer this short, but yes. Okay. I, <laughs> I mean, um, not only not only is the upsurge of anti-LGBTQ um, certainly at transphobia, uh, but all of this. I mean, if you if you you really can like trace manospheric activity. I'm going to use that word, and um, that. That is the source. It's not like those things don't have deep histories of their own that are being summoned, for example, with um, groomer discourse and all those kinds of things. So obviously in their own right, um, there are important histories to surface there. But is this being rekindled as part of a manly grievance agenda? 100%. Yes. And you can track that globally as well. Which just like makes so much more sense than when you see these things isolated in the wild. Because if if you're not aware of this context yes. and the fact that yes. like every Fox News A block is centered on, you know, trans athletes and women's sports would be like yeah. baffling. Because it's like, yeah. this isn't, this isn't affecting that many people. Like, why is this such a, yes. a huge focus of yours? But, you know, as you yes. say, it's like a, it's coming from a, a much richer tapestry, I guess. If I could give an example, um, you know, we we think of the the critical race theory scare, oh, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. CRT in schools, CRT in higher ed, DEI. And then we might think of um, the groomer stuff that was coming out. And I don't know how many people are aware that in the U.S. context, there is the same architect of all of those campaigns, basically, Chris Rufo, who... Right. And so like that's something in the book that I trace. And it is so stunning that people don't seem to know it's actually literally coming from the same mouthpiece who is designing these. He's like blueprinting, designing. And um, and then there's all these kind of organizations around it that have created uh, talking points and toolkits for creating what appears to be gr grassroots organizing in your community. Um, 
So it is, I mean, on the one hand, I cautioned against a central coordination headquarters view. And on the other, I want us to say, you don't have to dig very deep to see actual coordination as well. Yeah. Oh, that's nuts. Um, <laughs> okay. So uh, one thing I want to get to is this idea of like how to fix the problem, because there have been this preponderance of articles that I keep seeing. Like there's been a rash of them recently that are kind of lamenting like men's loneliness and and lack of success in the modern uh, dating context. But then the conclusion of a lot of these pieces, either tacitly or, or explicitly, seems to be... And that's straight women's fault, right? Like we're dropping the ball again um, (laughs) because they, you know, they don't want to date, you know, these guys who hold these like right wing views. Um, It's a sanitized or gentler version of replacement theory. Yeah. 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 Say more about that. Well, just a moment ago when we talked about the idea that replacement theory isn't just about white nationalism and the fear of a voting populist becoming brown. It is also about white women's failure to breed with white men and serve their reproductive roles, which is also connecting us hmm, to the trad wife thing now, isn't it? So (laughs) so this sort of idea, this call for empathy, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. I want to hear the, the question that was coming out of that, but this, the turn to like, yeah, can't you empathize with that? Like that's a real loneliness and maybe you know, white women should extend an olive branch or do something (laughs) for these poor guys is, is expressly what I'm arguing against in the book. And that's why I have this concept of empathy from the side (laughs) instead of empathy from the front. Um, But before I say more about that, I want to make sure you get to finish your... No, you're, you're getting right right at it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. It it feels that when it comes to manly grievance, there are two dominant responses, especially on the left, but overall. And one is oppose it, argue with it, right? And another is feel sorry for it, empathize with it. That will help to deflate the anger. And I do not think it does. Because if the goal is to suck up attention and restore the supremacy by doing so, I am the wounded victim. All of the attention needs to come to me. Then empathizing with that feeling is just feeding right into it. It's just expanding its share, right, of the territory that we talked about earlier. So um, what I would advocate instead is focusing not on the content that the feeling is putting out there, but focusing instead on its movement. That is, instead of getting caught up in what is being said by incels, for example, in this case, right, about uh, men's loneliness, or there's other men's separatist groups too, instead of getting caught up in those um, ideologies or those pleas that they're making or narratives, we would say, how is this feeling spreading? Like, how did the incel community explosively grow? (laughs) Don't listen to what it says. Tackle how it spreads, right? And that's what I mean by empathy from the side. If we really accept that there is a new communicative circuitry, then we need to be focused on the transmission of feeling, just as we would the transmission of a virus. You wouldn't be spending all your time being like, woe is you with this, um, you swallowed this ideological poison Poor you, you know, we would be like, how can we protect people from the communal spread of this feeling? 
if that makes sense. Totally. Now, that a, a, a very different set of solutions, and I put that in quotes because, of course, it's highly complicated, so it's not something you're going to fix, but a very different set of interventions comes out of that turn that I just made. And if we were talking at the individual level, like here you are with a very lonely man who wants to tell you that involuntary celibates, for those of you who don't know what incels are, are um, experiencing a lot of pain and deserve your empathy. You would, instead of arguing with the content of that argument, cut straight to the feeling level. Like, whoo, I, um, you know, you, you can address like other forms of pain in the world, but, but you would go to the animating feeling and disregard the argument. It is not a comfortable thing to do, but it, it would be what you would, the, the difference. Um, but then there's also, you could scale this up like at the educational level. We have so much training in higher ed on critical thinking and none on critical feeling. You know, at the journalistic level, there's all kinds of educational practices we could be teaching journalists about how to uncover these emotional tactics. So I, without giving, there's also parental kind of uh, solutions, interventions as well. So all of that to say, it's like a paradigm shift that then chains out into a different way of tackling this than calling the very people who are oppressed by this into empathy with their oppressor. I think we can see what's wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, in reading your book, I, I love the concept of lateral empathy. And I think there was some, there was a line you said, like, you know, instead of getting upset about someone saying, fuck you, look at why they said, fuck you. And I I thought that was, was kind of a really interesting phenomenon. But also, you know, it kind of helped me personally think about some of the relationships in my life. And you and I both grew up religious right-wing households. And I know firsthand about the difficulties in balancing the views of the people you love with, you know, your personal loyalty to your family and your love for your family and just love for people. For sure. Um, And, you know, just learning how to, you know, I've had to coach myself and learn how to have thoughtful and real conversations with people I love that don't end in denting the relationship as well. So how, I guess I just wanted to ask, like, how has that been for you and has it evolved particularly in and post the Trump era where I think a lot of people experienced these divides and they became clearer within families? I resonate so much with everything you said. I have had to learn the hard way as well how to reorient my own body to these conversations with family where I have stopped debating the finer points of this or that truth or mistruth <laughs> or ideological viewpoint. And instead, like you you gave the fuck you example from the book, <laughs> and instead of like mirroring what is coming at me, trying to slow down and pause and see the tightening fists, you know, in my um, relatives as they're starting to argue, seeing them puffing up their chests and realizing there's something to defend here, you know? They're like bracing. So then my interventions have become things like, are you okay? Are you okay, really? Like what? what is... What are you losing? What is lost? What is, what's the, you know, cutting to like, what's the fear? What's the, if all of this goes the other way, then what? 
where are we left? You know, what hurts us? So like at that level, um, I find that to be an ongoing challenge in my own life, right? So I write about it from having lived it. The intensifications of the um, Trump and post-Trump, well, is there such a thing? The post-Trump period? Do you know what I mean? The, the, yeah. The intensifications of the last now, honestly, decade have led to a situation where um, holidays together are less frequent, but we are doing our best kind of one-on-one and in small pods to have gatherings where ta- uh, politics are off the table, but the thing is they never are because everything's politicized. Mm-hmm. Bring a pie from Whole Foods and you're part <laughs> of the feminist elite that doesn't know how to cook anymore and you shop at Whole Foods. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so it's not possible to avoid it as it continues to mushroom. And so I, I do feel um, on an everyday, like life, love, relational level, challenged to practice what I'm trying to talk about in this book. Mm-hmm. And I wish you well too, Nicole. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so um, I think we're going to try to end on a positive note here um, and see you know, in the in the past year or so, like since since your book came out, or even even before that, is there anything that you've seen in this space that has like given you optimism or, or some reason to feel kind of hopeful? As you know, as you say, as this movement kind of mushrooms in, in the background. That is a daunting question and <laughs> yeah. the and the vital question. I. It's interesting <laughs> that before I started the research for this book, I think I was more dismal than I am now. So maybe that's a point of hope that in the process of doing this research and sort of coming to understand at least some of the mechanisms whereby this has exploded globally, right? The far right is gaining and gaining traction in all these different ways. Um, It feels to me like there's actually some opportunity for purchase on it differently. Like if we could make a paradigm shift, there are other modes of response that in and of itself is hopeful. I also, as you know, not just a, not just a researcher, but a teacher. And one of the classes that I am privileged to teach is gender and communication, where I see a lot of um, men in particular who enroll in my class because they've heard it's not as scary because it's not in gender studies, right? And it's more introductory. (laughs) And oh my goodness, the conversation conversations we have talking about these dynamics. They so much resonate with both the feeling and the social media part and the online dynamics and their ideas and ways of intervening it in this with peers are powerful and interesting. That gives me hope. Um, and also I think conversations like this, where people are willing to, for a half an hour, for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes to contend with gender and not treat it as some passe way of explaining things or as a sideshow, that gives me hope. The more we can talk about, for example, the Proud Boys and utter the phrase gender and not just treat them as a far-right group, they're telling us Proud Boys. They're telling us how important gender is to their agenda. The more we have conversations like this where we're calling it out, the more a turn becomes possible. I do believe that naming it is critical in this case. I don't know if that's as much hope as you were seeking. Maybe you can provide me with hope. (laughs) I don't know. I guess 
<laughs> it makes me feel a little bit, well, it makes me angry, but it also makes me feel hopeful to like talk about this stuff, which is what you're saying, right? It's like, as while it's just this pervasive, unrecognized force, then we're not anywhere close to kind of cracking down on it. But I think... I don't know. It does feel to some degree like people are catching on the kind of the same way that it took journalists like feels like sometimes the entire Trump administration to kind of like wrap their heads around him like to some degree the the tentacles if you will are starting to kind of I think people are starting to see them more. I think tentacles should be our model of like how this is all kind of coming <laughs> together and organizing. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So again, um, the really, really excellent book that I can't recommend enough is Wronged and Dangerous, Viral Masculinity and the Populist Pandemic. Karen, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Belaboring the Point with Kate Riga is a TPM podcast. The show is hosted by me, reporter Kate Riga. The show is produced by the excellent Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to our good friend, Why Not Jansfeld, for our podcast theme song. And thanks to our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.